This episode of Armchair Explorer is brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. With seven drive modes, the Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. And epic journeys is what we're all about. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Hey guys, welcome to the Armchair Explorer, where the world's greatest adventurers tell their best story from the road. I'm Aaron Miller. I'm a travel writer. And this episode is very close to my heart. I've been writing about this and shouting about it as loud as I can since I first heard about it almost 10 years ago. We are going deep into the Sierra Nevada mountains of Colombia to meet the lost tribe of the Kogi. Are you ready to have your mind blown? Yeah, me too. Let's go. The Kogi are descendants of the Tyrona people, a civilization which flourished in this region for centuries before the Spanish conquest of the 16th century. Led by their spiritual leaders known as the Mamos, the Enlightened Ones, the Kogi fled the coast and retreated high into the mountains, where they hid for 500 years, completely and utterly removed from the outside world. And as a result, their culture to this day remains almost entirely unchanged since the time of the Incas. But then... 20 years ago, they came out of hiding to give the world a message, a warning. And the man they chose to be their messenger was BBC documentary filmmaker Alan Herrera. He's an awesome guy. He tells an incredible story. And that's who's taking us on this adventure today. So if after listening to the story, you're inspired to get behind their struggle and help safeguard and protect their culture and indigenous knowledge and wisdom, please go to www tyronatrust.org that's t-a-i-r-o-n-a trust.org and sign up get involved donate what you can i'm a monthly donor and it's something i'm very very proud of to contribute to in some small way and i think you will too so please do check that out that's tyronatrust.org i'm going to be putting up all these details on the episode page of the website where you can go deeper into all of this too So we're just about to get started, but before we do, please remember, if you're enjoying the show, if it's inspiring you and you feel that this message, our message of love for the outdoors, of love for exploration, for unity and curiosity and respect for different cultures is a message worth spreading, please help by telling a friend, posting about it on social media, hitting that follow button and subscribe to the show. It really does make a huge difference. So thank you for your support and whatever you can do. The social media is at Armchair Explorer Podcast across Instagram and Facebook. The website is armchair-explorer.com, where you can find background information on each episode, book trips inspired by the show, and sign up for the newsletter. I hope you do. But don't worry about that now, because we are about to head deep into the mountains and jungles of Colombia to meet one of the most fascinating and little-known people in the world. Get ready to meet... The Lost Tribe of the Kogi. I was filming, actually, for a series on the Armada, and I was filming in the Gold Museum in Bogota, and the BBC said, oh, they found this lost city um, up in the Sierra Nevada in the north. Go and have a look and see if there's a story to tell. That is the famous lost city of Tyrona, located about 150 miles north of Cartagena on Colombia's Pacific coast near the city of Santa Marta. It was only discovered in 1976 by local tomb robbers. And the reason it was hidden so long is that it's located in dense jungle high up in the mountains. And at that time, it was almost impossible to reach. 
It is without a doubt one of the absolute wonders of South America, right up there, in my opinion, with Machu Picchu. For the Kogi today, it's a sacred place known to them as the origin of the people from the earth. And that's where Alan was headed. That was the film he was supposed to make. This is back in the 1980s when very little was known about it. And Alan was actually one of the very first people to try and document that lost city. But he got a little more than he bargained for. So I went up there. And on the way, trying to find out as much as possible, I became aware that the indigenous people who had built the lost city were actually still there on the mountain. But further up, the Tyrona civilization was wiped out in 1599, but the refugees rebuilt new cities higher up the mountain and were still there. So I thought, well, the thing to do is to approach them and ask them because we've never known what pre-Columbian cities were for and how they functioned and what it was about. They know because they're still living in them. The only problem was that they definitely didn't want anybody to come to them. And I found ways of getting messages to three of their communities. And the messages were the same. So I thought, what is it that they want? Why would they want me to come? And I sent messages saying, if you want to speak to the world, I can help you. And six months later, I got three messages back saying, we're waiting to work with you. Come. Before that message, the Kogi had been in self-imposed isolation for 500 years. And because of that, their culture had remained unchanged since the time of the Incas, unchanged since the time when that lost city was built. That's extraordinary. Until that moment, until that precise moment when they sent that message back to Alan, we're waiting to work with you. Come. They had been in hiding, thousands of feet above sea level, on the top of the Sierra Nevada de Santa Marta's tallest peaks, they had wanted absolutely nothing to do with the outside world. And they had good reason for that, too. The mountain itself is a phenomenal landmark. It sticks three and a half miles out of the sea, a little more, nearly four miles. And it's quite extraordinary because it's very, very tough territory. It's just 28 miles from the shore to the peak that's topped with glaciers. So you have on this triangle almost every climate on Earth. The Spanish found it so difficult there that for a long time they preferred to go to other places. They had a settlement, Santa Marta is the oldest city on the continent of America, but the main pressure was obviously going to go to places like Peru and to Mexico where the gold was. But the pressure on the Tyrona people, because that was what the civilization was called, was so heavy that in the end they rebelled and the Spanish then organized the elimination of the Tyrona civilization. 1599, they wiped out all the cities. They destroyed the whole thing. The Spanish massacred the Tyrona civilization, sending them fleeing from the coast high into the impassable terrain of the Sierra Nevada for sanctuary. But their mountain is more than a refuge. It's one of the most extraordinary ecosystems on Earth. And the reason has to do with its location. The Sierra Nevada are the tallest coastal range in the world, rising from the Caribbean Sea to close to 19,000 feet in less than 30 miles. Such diverse topography has created a huge range of habitats from tropical lowlands and mangrove swamps right through to cloud forests and arid plains and peaks permanently covered in ice and snow. Every climatic condition on Earth is represented in this singular stone pyramid of a mountain. The Kogi call it the heart of the world. And they might be right. Because of this unique ecological structure, because it represents all the life zones of the planet, it's like a microcosm of the Earth itself. 
What's happening to ecosystems here on the mountain is happening to those same ecosystems, those same life zones everywhere. So they're not just escaping, they're retreating to their most sacred place, their stronghold, their sanctuary. And they're going there because they have important work to do. They have, in their beliefs and understanding, a purpose, a mission that is absolutely essential to the survival of the world. The work they do is a kind of earth acupuncture. The mountain itself is a living entity, and they are part of that living entity, but they are also operating on it directly by performing small actions at precise locations which are necessary to redress the balance of harm done. And in taking care of this mountain that is the heart of the world, which is a living being, they are also taking care of the whole world. They call themselves the elder brothers. We are the younger brothers. We still have much to learn. And they see themselves as the guardians of the earth, the protectors of the natural world. But not in the way we might understand it. For the Kogi, the earth is alive, and not just in an abstract way. The earth itself, the mother, as they call her, is literally a conscious being. And through a very special sort of concentration, as they call it, they can connect with her. They can perform this earth acupuncture, as Alan calls it, special meditative practices, which they believe allows them to connect and communicate with the living earth. And they do that to balance and create harmony in the natural world. And the point of their existence, as they see it, is to listen. And by listening to the mother, listening to the earth, they can keep the balance, the harmony of their mountain. They can take care of it. And in doing so, because the mountain is a mirror for the planet, they take care of the rest of the world too. They take care of us, the younger brother. But there was a problem. They had been waiting. They believed, and still believe, that they have the duty to take care of the world. This is why they hid themselves away, so that they could carry on working to look after the world. But they had realized that their work was failing because the amount of destruction we do is so overwhelming. So they realized that they needed to make contact with us. But the question was how to do it, given that the people they were going to make contact with are the biggest thieves in the world. We are exploiters, we monetize everything, and we destroy indigenous cultures. So it was an extremely frightening possibility. They considered it, they discussed it, and then they sat down to wait. They received a number of approaches from different filmmakers, inevitably. But the other approaches had been along the lines of, I want to make a film about you. And they could see no merit in doing that. But my message was one that they had been waiting for, which was, if you want to speak to the world, I can help you. That was what they wanted to do. Their work had become impossible. They saw the damage that was being done by us, the younger brothers, and for the first time they were afraid. Afraid that it was going too fast, that they couldn't counteract it, that they couldn't keep the balance. They agreed to meet with Alan, not because they wanted him to make a film about them. They agreed to meet him so that they could pass on this message to us, a message so important that they decided to come out of 500 years of isolation. A message direct from the earth itself. He had been summoned to one of their lower villages for their initial meeting. But should he pass this test, he would be going right to the top where the most important Kogimamas, these spiritual leaders, live hidden, intentionally cut off from the rest of the world. He couldn't hike up. The jungle was just too dangerous for a white BBC documentary filmmaker, filled as it was at the time with Marxist guerrillas and drug traffickers and tomb robbers and any number of people and groups that would shoot him dead. 
on site. So he packed his bags and flew up by helicopter to one of these lower villages and prepared to meet with the Kogi elders. I didn't know what I was going into at all. I'd never had any connection with indigenous people. I had never been into this kind of an area before. I got the support of the Colombian government, which was very important, and I went with an anthropologist. I decided I should go with a woman in my team because what is dangerous in their eyes is going to be men. So it's very important to show that kind of balance, masculine and feminine. And she was experienced in working in the Andes. And she told me, now you've got to be very careful when you get up there. You will see people who look diseased and prematurely aged, and you mustn't display any kind of shock or distaste. You just have to take everything as it comes. We go over the jungle and we land in this open savanna and it just looks beautiful. And then indigenous people begin to arrive. The first one that arrives is not quite what she had led me to expect and not what she expected. Here's a young man on horseback, horse has a shiny coat, red woven harness. He's wearing a white robe. He's got glossy hair tumbling down over his shoulders. And he looks like a figure out of some medieval or pre-medieval fantasy. He's beautiful. And he pretty much ignores me. As they come in, I realize I'm looking at something which is incomprehensible to me, completely incomprehensible. And the other thing is, it becomes very clear, very quickly, that these people can see straight through me. There is nothing that I can hide or conceal because they don't have writing. They communicate using speech and body. And my body is a vehicle of communication which I don't know I'm using, and they do. They can read me. I didn't know how to act, how to speak, how to do anything that would be anything other than the simple truth of who I am. And suddenly, the whole burden of responsibility and calculation disappeared from me. And I have never been so relaxed in my life because there was nothing I could do to influence this situation. And... When they called me at night into the meeting house, this huge circular house in the dark with four fires burning and men in white robes sitting around actually from 17 different communities on the mountain who had all gathered for this experience, this moment, this conversation. They gather, they're sitting around the four fires and the voice of the one guy who's come with me who is a Kogi but who speaks Spanish comes from the back and he says, you've come to speak to us. So speak. And so I spoke and I explained what television is. I said, I have a machine that is an eye that remembers and an ear that remembers. And if you want to speak to the world, you can speak to this machine and people will see you and they will hear you. And it will be as though they came to the door of this house, but they won't actually be here. So you keep them at a safe distance. Now, I can think of reasons why you might want to do this. And I gave them some reasons. I said, there are also reasons why you might not want to do this. And you need to hear me tell you that this could be very dangerous for you. It will expose you. It will attract people. And it might be better if you say you don't want anything to do with it. And if you tell me that, I will go away and you will never see me again. And actually, at that point, I was hoping that's what they would do because I felt that the responsibility was too big. But they said, we've listened to your words. We will consider them. Tonight, we will go up the mountain and we will hold a divination. And we will talk to you tomorrow. Alan didn't sleep much that night. He stayed in the village as the mamas held a divination on top of the nearby hill to ascertain whether this was their guy, whether Alan was to be trusted. Divination is an incredibly important part of Kogi culture. Nothing 
is random for them. There is causality and interconnection between everything. So by reading nature's subtle signs, they believe they can ascertain the right course of action for their community. They can find a thread and follow it to where they want to go. Many divinations had brought them to this point, but this was the last. If the signs were favorable, if the mamas agreed and trusted Alan, then he would be allowed into the higher villages, into the sacred lands where no outsider had ever been before. And there they would begin their work, begin crafting their message to the world. If the signs weren't favorable, he would never see them again. This episode of Armchair Explorer is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic destinations on Earth. And Pathfinder, that's a pretty cool name, isn't it? Because that's also what this show is all about. Exploring, getting off trail, having adventures, finding your own path and living life to the fullest. Sound like you? Yep, sounds like me too. Which is why I'm so excited to partner with Nissan. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has seven drive modes, available intelligent 4x4. It's got the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds. So go ahead and bring all that gear with you and lots more. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder, a vehicle built for adventures everywhere. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. And this group of old men who have planned all this already are sitting in front of the rest who are now in rows and I'm facing them. And one of them says... Do you have a machine that remembers what we say? Yes, I do. Turn it on. And then they begin to speak. We are the elders, elders of all, with greater knowledge, spiritual and material. The elder brother was created to protect the earth because the earth, it is our mother. Without earth, we cannot live. So they are the elder brothers and they have this special responsibility. And then they begin to tell the history of the world, taking it in turns. In the beginning, there were no animals, no plants, only the sea. The sea was the mother. The mother was not people, she was not anything, nothing at all. She was, when she was, darkness. She was memory and possibility. She was a Luna. And it goes on from there to tell the whole story of the creation of the world and the coming ultimately of Columbus. And I'm listening to this recitation from people who have no writing and who have all the knowledge in their heads. And I am thunderstruck. And it's quite an experience. And before I leave, they say, we're going to do this. In that moment, sitting together in that ceremonial house, listening to the elders recount by heart their history, their beliefs, they showed him their purpose. Like so many indigenous cultures of the world, it begins with the simple, logical truth. The earth is our home. All life springs from it. We cannot survive without it. But for the Kogi, it develops from there to talk of a special knowledge, an ancient knowledge and wisdom that we once all shared, that they have kept safe. Well, we have forgotten it. They're an extremely logical people. So what you're dealing with are serious philosophers. 
Sitting with them, with the mummers, I keep feeling that I might be in 5th century BC Athens. It's that kind of intellectual quality. It's really impressive. So they start from the proposition, which you don't have to believe, but is not an irrational one, that thought is what is the essence of reality. Aluna is thought, is idea. That's what the word means. And the cosmos is a thinking entity. And in this thinking entity, thought experiments have been conducted endlessly. Some of those thought experiments become reality, what we call reality. The Kogi speak of this reality as being traces of the thought that lies behind them. So they're working all the time from this fundamental logic, which is not very different from some of the ancient Greek ideas. Aluna is the life force that underpins everything. It's a kind of cosmic consciousness. It's the idea, this crazy, mind-bending idea, which flips our worldview on its head, that thought itself, consciousness, didn't evolve gradually from the physical world, as is the common view. And by the way, if it did, to this day, the greatest minds in history can't explain how that happened. It's the idea that thought is the foundation of the physical world, that it works the other way, that it's primary, that life, the physical world as we know it, somehow springs from a kind of collective consciousness. The idea is that thought creates reality. And just before that critical, rational, Western part of your mind kicks in and scoffs, just think about it for a second. Think about the parallels with Eastern thought, the emptiness at the core of our being, the illusion of the physical world. Think of the parallels with our Western scientific theories of evolution, a sea from which we all came, with cosmology, the darkness before the Big Bang, with quantum physics, a field of possibilities which is affected by thought, by our interaction with it. This isn't mumbo-jumbo, this is real science, cutting-edge science. And so for just a second, suspend your disbelief, because if it is true, then their message to us might just be the most important one we'll ever hear. It was time for the filming to begin. The guy working with me told me about a town higher up where there was a passageway between trees and a great gateway. And I said, that'll make a wonderful opening for the film. We'll walk down the passageway between the trees to the great gateway and the great gateway opens and we come into your world. And that would mark off that you are beginning to speak to us. And the coggy who've never seen television, never seen a film and make no visual images said... That conveys the wrong idea. Firstly, we don't want people to know where this place is, so we don't want to show it. Secondly, it makes it look as though you and us are on the same level. We want to say that there's a gulf between us. So we want you to come in with your camera across a ravine, bridge the gulf, and we will build a bridge, and you will come in across the bridge, and we will build a little gate at the bridge. This was a brilliant visual device, which is extremely compelling when you see it in the film. They're better film directors than I am. It's an incredibly powerful part of the film. Alan hikes up this last steep part of the trail to the upper village, his team and equipment in tow. And then suddenly, in the midst of the jungle, they round a corner and standing in front of the bridge are eight Kogi mamas dressed entirely in white, bronze skin, long black hair flowing down their sides. The younger brother has returned, they say. He is at the gate of the elder brother. They open that gate. Alan crosses the bridge and enters a world unchanged for five centuries, a world no one had seen before, the lost world of the Kogi. 
It's more than a village, really more than a town. It's a substantial place. The buildings are all circular. They are all thatched. They are all on stone foundations. And generally speaking, you don't see many people. The villages, after all, are not occupied most of the time. People live on their own farms. They only come together in the towns when they are summoned. We were given a place to stay. They watch us unpack. They're amazed at the process of unpacking. They kept saying, so much, so much. Why do you need so much? What is all this stuff? Because they all carry the same, which is the men have a couple of bags over their shoulders and in it is everything they need. <laughs> we don't travel in quite that way, particularly not with a film crew. So we seem to have an insane quantity of kit. The whole experience of getting to know the Coggy transformed my understanding of how we live. Because I always thought the reason we live with all the stuff we do and the way we do is so that we will be comfortable, so that we will enjoy life more. I realized when I was with the Coggy, the opposite is true. Life with them is far more comfortable and far more healthy and far more refreshing. And you realize that you have perhaps never before breathed clean air and drunk clean water and eaten purely natural food and you are in some kind of paradise there's a quietness about it a peacefulness bird songs in the air there's mountains and mist rising above a river rushing far below but it's also very regimented everyone has specific roles and jobs the houses are tightly packed like a city they spend much of their time farming, tending to necessary chores and the tasks for the community. It's orderly. There's a purpose to it. Alan would spend six weeks up there getting to know the community. But although they're welcoming, it's also like two completely alien cultures meeting. Literally like two people from two different planets trying to find a common language. The population have no way of telling which of us are male and which are female, which I hadn't realized. All of us are wearing trousers. All of us are wearing similar clothes. So they can't tell whether we're all men or all women or, or what. Are we one tribe? Is the BBC a tribe? They're very puzzled by the fact that I can't walk. Their whole existence is walking, walking up and down the mountain nonstop. And one of the conversations with me is, oh, what's wrong with you? You have cars, you have aeroplanes, don't you walk in any of these things? The BBC cannot walk. And they watch me trying to walk around the mountains. The BBC is dying. They're very confused by all these questions. They keep asking interesting questions that enable them to try and sort out who they're dealing with. At one point, for example, a little group of men start asking me about what is the time difference between where I live and where they live. And that really surprises me. I say, what do you mean? Well, the world is round and it turns, so the sun must rise at a different time where you live from where we live. So what is the time difference? And I say, it's a quarter of a day. That must be a long way. Many years later, Alan went back to make a second film, and that film's called Aluna. And the purpose of it was to try and connect the Kogi with Western science, to find a common ground and understanding and language so that they could share their knowledge and ideas. And at one point, one of the mamas, Mama Shibaluta is his name, meets an astronomer. The astronomer shows him a picture taken of deep space with lots of points of light, all of them entire galaxies, galaxies of stars all over the picture, apart from one, which is a single solitary star on its own, the only star in this entire picture. This is a star, says Mama Shubalata. It's called Solabina. We cannot see it in the sky, but its light is created by a great fire. And he was right. 
But at that time, Alan's in the village. He's unpacked. They've figured out a little how to connect these two worlds and communicate with one another. And the filming has begun in earnest. There were three mamas who were in charge of the process of filming. And every two days, I sat down with the three mamas and we had a production meeting at which they recommended what we should film and how we should film it and where we should film it and when we should film it. So we sketched out two days of shooting between us and they were very disciplined and orderly about it. And so sometimes I would say, well, we need to do this and we need to do that. You need to establish to our audience that you are who you say you are. And they would come up with suggestions for ways of doing this. And then that's what we would go and film. One of the things that really bothered the Kogi was what is taking place when they get filmed, when a person is filmed. What is the truth of this experience? And they came to the conclusion that it was necessary to place themselves in the film in a kind of spiritual way. Now, actually, we have a word for that in English, and the word is presence. They wanted to establish their presence in front of the camera. And that would often take hours of mental preparation or spiritual preparation, or whatever you want to call it, that gathering themselves together to do what is to be done for the film. And you really see the difference. They film many things. We see their life, tending the stone paths of their ancestors. We see inside the Nuhuay, the world house, its thatched roof and palm leaf walls replaced every few years. But that house itself has stood there for more than a thousand years. We meet the women and the children. We see the map stones, paths of Aluna, lines carved into it in complicated patterns and geometric shapes. And then we are taken to a dark cave where the mamas, the enlightened ones, receive their training. Normally, you're put into mama training from birth. There is a divination uh, during the pregnancy, and the child would be put into training from birth and be brought up in the dark, initially with its mother. There are people who've had their whole life from birth up to the age of 18 is spent in darkness, training them for their special role of communicating, as I now know, with the mountain itself, with thought in the mountain. But this guy, Mama Bernardo, it was his elder brother who was supposed to be the mama and who was taken in at birth. And Bernardo wasn't, but his brother died. And so he was taken in at six years old into the darkness. And then he has to spend years and years being taught to think, to understand, and to feel nature and experience it in the dark. Only allowed out at night, usually with a covering over his head because the moon can be very bright as well. It's a very deprived life. You're only allowed to drink warm water. You're only allowed to eat certain foods. It's a very, very tough existence. I mean, another one, Mama Manuel, when his time in the darkness was up and he came out, he turned straight back and scurried back into the darkness again and stayed curled up in a ball for three days, which you would. It is a brutal upbringing. Alan even goes as far to say it's child abuse, which it kind of is, raising a child in the dark, only allowing it enough light so that it doesn't go blind. But no color, no life, not even fire. Its mother comes only at night, only to feed it. But in their view, in their understanding of it, the act of creation, of changing things from being pure thought, pure Luna, into substance, into the material world, is a process of illuminating it. So emerging from the darkness into the light is actually living through the moment of creation of the world itself. 
And it's more than symbolic too. The darkness is essential for their training. They believe that because the darkness stops them from seeing and it forces them to listen. And that is the way in which they communicate with the Luna. It's not by speaking. It's by emptying themselves, by being quiet enough, still of mind enough to listen, to hear her. And what they hear, what they're told time and time again, is that what is taken must be paid for. There must be balance. There must be harmony. And if we take more than we give, if we keep taking, we upset the balance of the world. And the world will take its payment from us in other ways. It will balance itself. Alan spends many hours in those caves listening to the mamas, trying to understand how they see the world, trying to understand Aluna. Then near the end of his trip, they're finally ready to show him, to show him the proof behind their message. But for that, they must climb to the very top of the mountain, to its most sacred place. And there's some problems with that. Incidentally, while we were making the film, I was condemned to death by the guerrillas. Just incidentally, just as an aside, I had a hit put on me by Marxist guerrillas. And they were actually scouring the jungle looking for me to put a bullet in my head. Incidentally. Yeah, that complicated things a little. What had happened was that the nuns got very upset at the fact that we were doing this filming. The mission had been operating for a couple of hundred years and had not made any converts. And here am I and my film crew celebrating and promoting the values of paganism. And so we were seen as a major threat to the Christian mission. And the nuns decided the way to deal with this was to denounce me to the Marxist guerrillas. <laughs> and can you imagine what kind of a contradiction there is here? Catholic nuns go to Marxist guerrillas and denounce me as somebody who is undermining the Cockies culture. And what they're really upset about is that I'm honoring the Cockies culture and they want that to be stopped. So then I'm told by some Cockie that they have been informed by the guerrillas that I am to be killed and that anybody who tells me that this is happening is also to be killed. So I get the crew and I say, look, this is what's happened. I think it might be a good idea if you go home now. And the crew, God bless them, said, are you going to stay? I said, yeah, the Kogi say they'll look after me and keep me safe. If you're going to be kept safe, we'll be safe. We're going to stay with you. By this stage, the crew had fallen completely in love with the Kogi. They were transfixed by them. And so from then on, the next stage of the film was to go to the top of the mountain, the most sacred area, where you could really see what they're talking about. They're talking about environmental destruction and the rate of change. And when you get up high into the area of the glaciers, you really see how much things have been changing, how much they've tried out, how serious the issues are. But to get up there meant being moved around by the Kogi in such a way that we were never going to get caught by the guerrillas. And what's happening during that period is that we can see the guerrillas because we can see where they're making fires over the other side of valleys and on other peaks. And the Kogi are hiding our existence because that's what they know how to do. So we were able to move around the mountain reasonably freely, but obviously with a certain amount of trepidation. Alan must be the only person in the world to have a hit put on him by a bunch of Catholic nuns, but they didn't succeed. And it was there at the top of the mountain, in the midst of the tundra, the highest life zone, the life zone from which all others depend, that Alan 
finally understood why they came out of isolation to give us this message. The mountain peaks are the source of the cycle. Water flows down from the high glaciers, feeding the forests and jungles below with the rivers that they form, and then flowing finally out to sea where they turn into clouds that drift back up the mountain and form waters and glaciers again. This, the top of the peaks or the heart of the mountain, literally the life of the entire Sierra Nevada mountains depend on this part of the ecosystem. It all flows from here and it is all dried up. Because the mountain has such a variety of ecological zones, they see all the changes. It's like the Arctic is changing much faster than temperate zones where you and I live. So it's true of the mountain as well. The Sierra Nevada, the snowy peaks are no longer snowy. The glaciers are now virtually gone. The water has disappeared. The plants up there are all dry, desiccated. So they are quite clear that the evidence is there. Also, of course, lower down, they see the disappearance of birds. They see large animals have vanished. The whole ecology of the Sierra has now changed, and it's changed dramatically since I did the films. I mean, Santa Marta, the city at the bottom, a city of, what, half a million people, was supplied with water, for God's sake, from a rainforest and glaciers. Well, the water's gone. The rainforest isn't a rainforest anymore. The glaciers aren't glaciers anymore. And Santa Marta does not have a water supply anymore. There is a real crisis. This is what they're afraid of. This is why they have come out of hiding. What's happening on their mountain is happening all over the planet. This is the message from the heart of the world. Well, basically, what they were saying was, you've got to stop destroying the world. You don't seem to realize that you are destroying it. And we tell you, we know you are. And this will produce all kinds of eruptive horrors. You will begin to get parasites, new deaths, and new diseases. And there will be new diseases unless you stop, unless you reduce your impact, use less. That was the message that they were giving at that point. It was meant to be a kind of slap on the face. They thought that we didn't know the harm we're doing and that when we learned it, we would stop. And they were, of course, wrong. We did know the harm we were doing. And when we learned it, we shrugged and carried on. They thought in their innocence, in the simple, plain logic of it, that we didn't know the harm we were doing. And when they explained it to us, when we understood that, we would stop. But we already knew. We just didn't care. And that's why, 20 years later, they made a second film. The film is called Aluna. Not to tell us of the damage we were doing, but to show us, to prove it in our own language and way of understanding. We spent a long time discussing how we're going to tell the story, what is it you're going to convey, how you're going to do it. And the man who is now the current leader of the Coggy's organization to speak to the outside world took me aside and spent a day with me teaching me about water flow. And he said, this is the heart of your film. What you have to communicate is that the damage that you people do at estuaries wrecks the source of the river. And you don't seem to understand that. But without the estuary working properly, the whole of the river ceases to function. And the water flow stops at its source. And he explained how that works. And this is something which is now getting better and better understood by 
Western science and hydrographers, so that there, for example, now is a huge program of removing dams from rivers because that's one of the ways in which you wreck the river is by stopping the natural flow and it stops it right at the source. McCoggy had great difficulty in the film talking to scientists who didn't understand what they were talking about. They found it very difficult to see why they didn't know what they were talking about. Because to the Coggy, it's not just obvious that a river's source is fed from what's down below, because the water has to rise up in the form of clouds, and if it's not coming up, if that evaporation isn't happening properly, it doesn't work. But also, because they know how the whole cycle functions in great detail, they know where each cloud is born. So they know which clouds supply which river sources, which is something that I don't think we have the faintest idea of. There's other things too, ideas which science is just now realizing. But the main one, the one that Kogi stressed repeatedly, is that there is a kind of invisible web which connects all things, and that there are special places within this web, cornerstones of the ecosystem, which cannot be destroyed without consequence. If we build a dam that cuts a river in two, we don't just hurt that river, we set off a chain reaction of events for every single plant and animal and tree and living thing that is connected to that river and is fed by it. And if we widen out from that example and look at all the razor cuts we're doing to this web, all these cornerstones we're tearing down, what the Kogi's warning is, what their message is, what they can't believe we don't understand, is that we are a part of that web too. We are fed by that river too. This is one of the things you learn with the Kogi, you really do, is that everything that happens that is going on around you is connected to everything else, that nothing is separated. So one of the things that I learned when I'm with them or in their territory is to be much more conscious than I have ever been before or am ever when I'm not in that region of the totality of what is happening around me because it is one single web of information and that's what they're connecting to. I can't do that. But I am at least aware of it and sense it and feel it, not because I want to or choose to or think it's clever of me, but because when I'm with them, with the pure water, with the pure air, breathing, living, I'm connected. After six weeks of filming and living with the Kogi, at the end of Alan's journey and at the end of the film, we find ourselves back at the bridge where we started back at the gateway from their world into ours. Their message is given. They close the gateway, turn their backs, and disappear into the jungle. Like the song says, you don't know what you've lost till it's gone. <laughs> so leaving, it took me a long while to understand what it was that had gone when I left. And one thing is that connection, the ability to feel, the sheer pleasure of being in a more pure world, physically. The other thing that happens when I leave is that the Kogi stop being reality, which is, they are completely incomprehensible to me. There's nothing that they say or think or do that I can comprehend because their whole mental framework is utterly different from mine. The longer I'm away, the more I internally digest them and produce in my own mind Coggy who I can understand. So I produce fictional Coggy, 
And it's those that I talk about. <laughs> what else can I do? And for every few months, if I can, I need to go back to rediscover that they're not who I have thought they are and that I don't understand them at all. Perhaps we can't understand the Kogi, not fully. Perhaps our language, our ways of thinking are just too different. But then again, perhaps we can. If we close our eyes and listen, really listen, perhaps we too, however faintly, can hear Aluna. And when we do, perhaps we'll be ready to heed their message, their warning from the heart of the world. Perhaps then we, the younger brother, will have finally grown up. We live in a society which has learned to think that being competitive is how life functions, that the survival of the fittest, not only in terms of biology, but all our actions are how things operate. But that is a completely false perspective. The way in which life operates is by cooperation and mutual support and being conscious that for everything that is taken, something must be given. And that is actually how an economy needs to function, as well as biology and society. And in order to save the world <laughs> this terrible moment, we have to accept this not very difficult idea that for everything we take, there is a payment. And if we don't respect that, nature takes the payment anyway, because they operate on a basis of reciprocity with nature. They are in harmony with nature, and they say that all this is a result of having incurred a debt which has to be paid, and if we don't pay it willingly, we get to pay it unwillingly. Thank you, Alan, and thank you especially to the Kogi for allowing us to share this story. If you're inspired to help spread this message, please go to www.tyronatrust.org. That is T-A-I-R-O-N-A trust.org. You can find lots more information about the Kogi there, as well as both films in full for free to watch. Definitely do that. But most importantly, there is a donate button right there. I give about $5 a month, the price of a cup of coffee. But if we all did that, we can make a big difference. And one of the projects which they've just kicked off in collaboration with UNESCO is joining together Western ecologists with Kogi Mamas to restore an area of destroyed forest. And if we can prove it there, if we can get the support of Western science, then we can expand that project and restore other devastated ecosystems around the world. That website again is tyronatrust.org. Thank you for whatever you can do. Finally, and most of all, as always, thank you to you guys. Thanks for listening. Thanks for your support. Thank you for helping this community, our community, grow. Remember, the world is alive, and so are you. So keep looking for that amazingness wherever you are and wherever you go, because the more we look for wonder in the world, the more the wonder of the world becomes a part of who we are. Dare to be truly alive.